Uh, well, thank you, Mr. McLeod, for uh, the introduction and the opportunity <coughs> given today to speak on this wonderful subject, the Ark of the Covenant. It takes you right back into the heart of the Old Testament, and it takes you right into the Gospel in the New Testament. And it is indeed a wonderful subject, a subject that it is questionable whether I or many would ever be able to do justice to, but we do pray that the Lord would bless us as we think on this topic. And I want to look at four things as the Lord will enable us. First of all, the importance of the Ark of the Covenant. Secondly, some preliminary aspects of the Ark of the Covenant. The symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant and some final lessons to be gathered from the Ark of the Covenant. So these four things, the importance of it, some preliminary aspects of it, the symbolism of it and some final lessons to be taken from it. First of all then, let us look at the importance of the Ark of the Covenant. How important the Ark of the Covenant was so far as the children of Israel are concerned. It was the very centre, the very heart of their worship. And there are three, three things that I want to bring before you that would indicate to us the importance of the Ark. The first is this. If you were to make a house or to build a house, or if you were to buy a house, what would you look for? Well, my wife would look for a kitchen because we, need, we like to be hospitable. And that's her domain. She likes a kitchen. She would look and see what the kitchen was like and the dining area was like. I would, for me, I would go and look at the study because that's where I would spend my time, in the study. I want to know what the study's like. My girls, they're upstairs, they would be wanting to see what their bedroom would be like. So everybody would have a different aspect that they would see important in a house. And that is just, that is as true when it comes to God's house. Every part of the tabernacle, every part of the temple was indeed important. But the very first place and the very the first thing that was to be that was the instructions were given with uh, regard to, to the tabernacle was concerned, the first thing that God addressed wasn't a room. It was a piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. You notice in the early part of the church, of this chapter, and uh, you have instructions with regards to the people coming with a free will offering for the, 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 the building of the, the tabernacle. In verse 10, he now tells us what that tabernacle, begins to tell us what the tabernacle is to be like. And he begins with, verse 10, they shall make an ark, an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length and so on. This is the very first piece of the tabernacle that instructions are given for. And that ought to immediately let us uh, indicate to us the importance of the Ark of the Covenant. 
It cannot be highly stressed the importance that is given to the Ark of the Covenant. Everything else centres around the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. The rest of the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle is for the installation of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's why when God comes to, to, to determine his house, he begins with this piece of furniture. The second reason that I would bring before you as to the importance of the Ark of the Covenant is this. If you were to ask any Israelite or any Jew, what is the most important day in your calendar? If I were to ask you today, what's the most important day in your calendar? He might say, well, it's my birthday or <coughs> it's uh, communion. Any of these things, it might be anything. But you ask a Jew or an Israelite, he will not even stop to think about it. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That is the most uh, solemn and the most important day in the calendar for the Israelite. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it is in that day that the Ark of the Covenant comes into its own. Every other day, the Ark of the Covenant is hidden behind the veil. Not even the priests would see it. And as far as the people are concerned, they would be even further away. But on that one day, the high priest would go into the holy place... He would fill the place, first of all, with the incense. He would then come out and he would bring the blood and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. It is on that one day, the day of salvation, so far as the Jews were concerned, the day of salvation. You remember how it goes through the Old Testament and so often it says, in that day, in that day. The psalmist in Psalm 118, this is the day God made. What day are they talking about? It's the day of salvation. For the Jew, the day of atonement was the day of salvation. But it was looking forward to a day. One day when the Messiah would come. And that day would be the day of salvation. This is the day God made. In it, we will rejoice triumphantly. And it was on that day that the Ark of the Covenant came into its own. The day of atonement. And the third reason why uh, I would suggest that the Ark of the Covenant is so important is not just because it was the first article of the temple to be described and by the Lord. Not just that it was so, it was so prominent in that day of atonement but, in the, but at that place the presence of of the glory of the Lord was to be seen. The Shekinah glory appeared above the mercy seat. You see that in verse 22. And there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. If you think of when the, the, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken away by the Philistines. Ultimately it was brought back down and when it was brought back down into Israel, we are told that David danced before the Lord 
with all his might. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God communes with his people, was back among his people. God's glory was once again in the midst of his people. You imagine how the children of Israel then would view the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. He appeared between the cherubim. There is where the Shekinah glory would be found. Now what do we learn from the importance then of the Ark of the Covenant? Well how important it was to the children of Israel and how important the mercy seat and uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant ought to be with us. We don't come to a piece of furniture in a, a tabernacle. We, are, we have the great privilege of entering into the holy place not made with hands, into heaven itself. And that is where in preaching we ought to be taking our people. We, not, we ought to be leading them to the, 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 the altar of burnt offering. But if you stop at the altar of burnt offering, you're failing. You're failing. Liberal theologians will take you to the altar. We are told in scripture that without the shedding of blood there is no remission. But there can be shedding of blood and still no remission. Because a liberal can take you to the altar at the, at the door. And there he can see someone who dies, a good man who dies, a, a morally upright man who gives his life and go no further. There is the shedding of blood, but it, that blood needs to be taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled upon the mercy seat. Isn't it glorious that in preaching the gospel today, we can take sinners into the Holy of Holies. We need to lead them to the mercy seat, to the place where there is mercy and where there is grace to be found. Where, this, where our sins are washed away in his precious blood. The Ark of the Covenant was very, very important. If it wasn't there, didn't mean to say that it wasn't God's house. We'll speak about that later on. But it did mean that that house was doomed. Take away God's glory and the house is doomed. Take away the Ark of the Covenant. A congregation, a denomination is doomed. Unless we can take, unless we take our, 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 ourselves in to the Holy of Holies, unless we can come to that great high priest who has entered into the Holy of Holies for us, unless we come to him, then we are failing. The importance of the Ark of the Covenant. But secondly, let us look at some preliminary aspects of this Ark of the Covenant. And what do, we, what do we see about the Ark? Well, we see where it came from. Who was it that built the Ark of the Covenant? Well, we know that uh, Bezaliel uh, was the one who most likely himself built the Ark. But the Ark was built at the commandment and the instruction of God himself. You see that at the beginning of uh, chapter 25. And the Lord spake unto to, to Moses. The Lord spake unto to Moses. 
God there when he speaks to him God spake unto Moses the word there is appeal you don't get that in the English it's appeal it means that it is a very very strong word God is not just here having a wee bit of a chat with Moses he's not asking Moses let's have a chat and discuss worship it is very very intense the difference would be for example someone breaking a cup or smashing it God is now speaking to Moses and God is saying to Moses you better listen to every single word that I now say and you better be careful have your ears listening to everything that I'm going to tell you speak to the children of Israel while you devour again that's the word to speak and it's now an imperative it's a commandment you see when God speaks to his people in the Old Testament he's not coming and saying to them you can worship me as you like and you can approach me whatever way you want God determines and dictates how he will be approached and it's also interesting where he commands uh, the, 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 the construction of this ark it is on Mount Sinai God meets with Moses on the mount in the previous chapter you see that God is meeting and giving directions for mercy and he gives it on the Mount Sinai now notice here when you look at verse 16 in the previous chapter Moses went up into the mountain a cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai God's glory is dwelling on the mount the difficulty is as Paul uh, later on uh, uh, as, 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 as we are told in the Hebrews they could not endure that which was commanded and if so much as a beast touched the mountain it shall be stoned or thrust, thrust through with a dart they come to Mount Sinai and what do you see in Mount Sinai? the glory of the Lord abode upon the mount but we are now told that that glory that's on Mount Sinai is now going to lift and abide with his people above the Ark of the Covenant God is going to dwell with his people because they could not enter in to Mount Sinai they would die so we are seeing immediately the need when we see where these instructions are given we are seeing immediately the need for an access to God but there's more than that isn't there there is a practical demonstration as to why there is the need for the Ark of the Covenant and why there is the need for a mercy seat because while Moses is receiving these very instructions upon the mount for 40 days Aaron and the children of Israel are making to themselves an idol they're raising up a golden calf and they say these be thy gods O Israel which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt my friend if there is anything that tells us the need for the Ark of the Covenant 
God's dwelling place is not the ark. God's dwelling place is in heaven. But the access, the door into heaven is to be found where he meets with his people at the mercy seat. Jesus says, I am the door. I am that door. I am the door. If any man will enter in, let him come unto me. This is the door where God dwells. And it is needed because they could not come to Mount Sinai. And in Mount Sinai, there is a most practical demonstration in the fact of the idolatry that is being practiced at the foot of the mount by the children of Israel. And the third thing, so therefore we see that we see that where he is commanding it, not only who is commanding it, God, and he is commanding every aspect of it, not only that, but where he is commanding it, but we also find the intrinsic power that there is. What intrinsic power does the Ark of the Covenant actually have? Does the Ark of the Covenant have any intrinsic power of its own? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It does not have any intrinsic power of its own. The children of Israel thought that it would somehow have some kind of magical power. That is why they took it down out into battle with them against the Philistines. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. It didn't save them out of the hand of their enemies. Not only did they discover that they failed, the ark itself was taken away by the Philistines. Now there's a question here. The Philistines take the ark of the covenant, they take it down into, the, in, into their own uh, temple of, the, of Dagon. What do you notice about that? <coughs> Not one of them, we are told, actually dies. It was a curse to them. But the Philistines came, and I doubt if the Philistines would be very reverent when it came to lifting the Ark of the Covenant. They took it down and put it into their own temple. Do we believe that not one of them touched the Ark? Many of them would have touched the Ark. And yet they never died. And yet Uzzah, when it's being taken back down into God's, into the, 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 the back down to Israel, the oxen stumbles and it goes to fall off the car. All he does is push his hand to, to stop it. And he's dead like that. Why is that te that's telling you? <clears throat> that the ark itself has no intrinsic power of itself. It is, it is the power that is given to it. And to the Philistines, the Ark of the Covenant was to them, as it were, a test. It's a test to them. How can their God stand before the Ark of the Covenant? Dagon falls before the Ark of the Covenant. It's a test of their God. My friend, when the gospel goes out of here, and you see all the... the, the, the the different religions that there are, the Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Hinduism, what can they do for you? Every single religion falls because none of them have the Ark of the Covenant. None of them are able to save you and to wash away your sins. They can tell you how you might work, 
You can tell you how you might bow before their gods, how you might fear their gods. You might bow seven times to Mecca. You might go around the doors working for salvation. None of them have the Ark of the Covenant. None of them have the gospel of good, the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel which is saves, saves sinners and brings them into glory. To the Philistines, their gods fell. But the same ark was now a test, not of whether they, their God, but to, to the children of Israel, it was now a test of their obedience. The Philistines are not going to be judged for what they don't know. But Uzzah knew fine well that he was not to touch that ark. Now the ark of the covenant is a test of obedience to God's people. What do we learn then from these uh, three things? Well, we learn because God, God himself gives the instructions as to how it's to be made. <clears throat> the normative principle we don't accept. The normative principle which Luther and these accepted were uh, you, you, you don't need to bother. What, as long as God doesn't say you don't do it, you can do it. We believe surely in the regulative principle. God regulates how he is approached. God regulates the way you approach. Every aspect of God's house is regulated by God's commandment. And we surely learn that from the Ark of the Covenant. They were to listen and to obey what God has to say. But also, we discover that the law, Sinai, they came there first. And what did they find at Sinai? The law. It was a schoolmaster to send them to the Ark of the Covenant. The law was a schoolmaster to send them to mercy and grace. Only to be found at the Ark of the Covenant. The gospel today saves. We bring sinners to the law. We preach the law, not in order that a sinner might be saved, but to, as a, to bring them to the law that it would be the schoolmaster to bring them to Jesus Christ, to show them the glory of the mercy seat that is to be found uh, through the veil. The gospel condemns false gods, but the gospel is also demanding obedience. That brings us then, if we see that, that uh, the Ark of the Covenant had two different effects upon one in the Philistines and the other on Israel, let us go thirdly to the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant. Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 8 that these things were, a, were the shadows of the heavenly things. A pattern of the things that were to come. They were the shadows of the gospel of the Messiah who is yet to come. That is true of the whole of the, of, of the, of the tabernacle. It is true of the most holy place. It is true of the Ark of the Covenant where the blood is shed and sprinkled. Now when you come to the Ark of the Covenant, you discover the name. It is called the, in scripture, it's the Ark of the Testimony. That's the first 
way it's really described. The Ark of the Testimony. That's what was read. I will put the Ark of the Testimony in there. It is called the Ark of the Lord. The Ark of God. The Ark of Thy Strength in Psalm 132. But the principal uh, description throughout the latter, throughout the whole of Scripture, is that it is, it is seen as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Why is it the Ark of the Covenant? Because within the Ark was contained the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were the Covenant, was the Covenant. The Ten Commandments, the Covenant into which Israel was brought. The Ten Commandments. Not the ceremonial law or any other laws. It was the Ten Commandments that indicated the covenant that God made with Israel. When you go to Exodus chapter 34, the Lord wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant. The Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are the words of the covenant. In Deuteronomy, and he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments. God enters into a covenant with his people. All other ceremonial laws and all the other laws flow out of that covenant. But that's the, that is the covenant. The trouble is, the ten commandments, as we have seen, could not be kept. They had to be hidden. They had to be hidden in the ark. They had to be hidden even behind the curtain. Because they could not keep that covenant. That had to wait for the coming of the one who would fulfill the law. And fulfill everything. Fulfill that covenant. The one who would perfectly keep the law. That means, of course, that the covenant is a covenant of grace. The covenant that was there is a covenant of grace. The Old Testament is all part of the covenant of grace. When God gave them the Ten Commandments, he didn't give them the Ten Commandments before they came out of Egypt. He gave them the Ten Commandments after they were out of Egypt. After they were delivered out. It was all of grace. He then says, I am the Lord your God that delivered you out of Egypt. The covenant there, therefore, is a covenant that is waiting for the coming Messiah. And the Ark of the Covenant itself typifies that Messiah. The Roman Catholic Church says that the Ark of the Covenant is Mary. It's ridiculous. It's really the Virgin Mary. It's all part of their Maryolatries. And I'm not going to go in here today to, to counter that. It's just so ridiculous. The Ark of the Covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who fulfills the law perfectly. And there are two things that are symbolic of our Saviour in this Ark. It was made first of all of shittim wood. And secondly... It was overlaid with gold. What a wonderful ark. It was shittim wood because that symbolized his human nature. Christ would redeem his people and bring his people and save his people in the same nature in which that first covenant 
had been broken. He took upon him our nature, the wood that is there, human nature. And there's a wonderful picture of, of, of that human nature given to us in the wood. But that wood had to be covered. And that is it's wonderful because when you go to the altar of burnt offering, the altar of burnt offering is bronze. What's the covering? Shittim wood. The same human nature. Now that human nature, now that symbolism of the shittim wood is taken right into the Holy of Holies. And it's now covered in gold. He rises up into glory, into the heavenly places. Christ Jesus has entered into not the, the holy place made with hands, but the same Jesus Christ has risen up into heaven. The same human nature that was here in this world, that suffered and died, is now in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? The symbolism of that is even there. Now, what, what wood was it? Well, let me read you this. The wood, says the, direction, the, the dictionary.com said, the wood, probably acacia, of which the Ark of the Covenant and various parts of the tabernacle were made. Acacia wood. And encyclopedia.com says, wood of the Shita tree, probably an acacia. And yet again, another says, in the Bible, the wood of the Shita tree, probably an acacia, and it goes on to say the revised version of the Bible calls it acacia wood. Do you see the absurdity of that? Do you see the absurdity of that, that these statements? It is probably acacia. Another one you'll, you'll hear says it's possibly acacia. So the revised version, it just says acacia. You will not read the shitim wood in the revised version. And you might say to yourself, well that's only one version. My friend, the New King James Version, the, ES, the, 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 the Revised Version, the NIV, every single version you come across changes it from the shitty wood to acacia wood. Why? Because it probably is that. My friend, what a way to treat God's word. Itse, itse is the word for a tree in Hebrew. You don't need to be a great Hebrew scholar to know. Itse is a tree. And, and what is said here, 26 or 27, 27 times I think it is, is called Itse Shittim. Shittim wood. But all these different versions change that to Acacia. Why? Why should you treat God's word that way? It is stated the Shittim wood. Now, when you look, I'm not an expert in wood. But what you do, what many of them will say is, it's of the genre of acacia. In other words, it's of the fact, and I see here, I, I just give you this myself, I always tell my own people, if, I, if I'm giving something myself, so they can take it or leave it. Why is it shitting wood? Well, here you have a wood that is part of the acacia family. It's the only one, acacia wood is the only one that will live in a desert. God didn't need to tell them that because that's the wood they probably would have used anyway. But here is one particular part of this family, the shitting wood. Christ becomes 
And it's, it's, when, when you come here to Romans, Paul says, For the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The shitty mood was a part of the family, of the Acacia family. It was like them all, but it was unique, because it disappears. Acacia wood you will find today in the desert, you will not find shitty wood. Indeed, they, they hardly know what it is. That's why they're saying, well, it's probably acacia. It's possibly acacia. I think it's because that has disappeared. Christ rises up into heaven. He leaves this world. It's shooting, and it's pure gold. It's completely covered in pure gold. Why? Well, it's his divine nature. But that's even wonderful. Because without the divine nature, without the gold... The shitting wood would have been destroyed. You go back to the altar of burnt offering, you have the shitting wood covered in bronze, covered in this metal. You try uh, putting a, 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 an offering into the wood, that wood would have been, that altar would have been destroyed in no time at all. But you cover it with the bronze and you cover it with gold. And that will last. You see, when you come to the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ itself would not have been able to withstand all that he went through on the cross. No mere human could ever have sustained what Christ sustained on the cross. No mere human person could ever have borne the sins of his people the way Christ did. It was his divine nature upholding his human nature. That's why the shitting wood is covered in the bronze and the gold. It is his divine nature here that is seen at the very heart of the Ark of the Covenant. And now he is seen raised up in pure gold. Think of what, what Paul says. For in him dwelleth the full, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he, who being the brightness of his glory. And the express image of his person. What better way could you see in describing our Saviour. As the one who is the brightness of his glory. Gold. Now. And then we come to what it actually contains. Now I'm not going to go through all the, the manna, Aaron's rod. I'm not going to go through all of them individually. You, you can have sermons on You could spend a, a sermon on one, each one of them. But Paul tells us, The Ark of the Covenant wherein was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Three things Paul tell, uh, the Hebrews tells us. The Ark of the Covenant is God's throne. Mr. MacLeod mentioned this, I think, was it in his prayer? The throne of grace is the throne of mercy. There is the Ark of the Covenant. Above it is God's throne. And everything that the children of Israel received from God, they received from that throne. Through mercy, through grace, they received it. Every blessing. The forgiveness of sins, access to God, they received it from there. And there are three things within that that typify that. Manna, Aaron's rod, 
and the tables of the covenant. Paul puts them, uh, you would have thought the tables of the covenant would be first, whether he's going from the least to the greatest or the more practical maybe. But the manna that was there, the Ark of the Covenant tells us and signifies to us the manna that was given to God's people in the wilderness. In other words, God takes care of his people. And he does through, not because they're better than anybody else, but through the altar of mercy and of grace. The altar of the covenant. You think of, of, of Christ himself. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He's the bread of life. He feeds his people even in the wilderness. And he does so, as we've said, not because they are better than any other nation, but simply through the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant. He has entered into covenant. A covenant of grace that fed God's people in the wilderness. And a covenant of grace that feeds God's people today. But it's not just that they see the manna. Because when you come to the mercy seat, how do you come to the mercy seat? How do you come to God and commune with God? You come as a hell-deserving sinner. How often do you complain about God's goodness to us complain, complain about providence complain about whatever it is where do you need to take your complaints to the mercy seat there is one who never complained there you have one who had every reason to complain and yet he rejoiced in doing the will of the father he never complained when we complain and we sin, we fail in this. Just as some of the children of Israel failed. They complained about the manna. There is a mercy seat. But then there's Aaron's rod. The rod that budded, that, that indicated God's priest. Aaron, the priest. Who is God's priest? Korah. Dathan and Abiram plus 250 were destroyed because they, because they questioned God's authority. The one whom God had chosen. And it was that rod budding. In the, 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 the rod that budded the almond fruit indicated this is God's chosen. Jesus Christ is the chosen of God. How do you know? He has demonstrated it by many miracles. He has demonstrated it by rising from the dead. He has given many tokens that he is the son of God. No man spake as this man. No man did these miracles that this man has done. Aaron's rod that budded is nothing in comparison to all that Christ has done. In rising from the dead. Triumphant over death in the grave. He is God's anointed. And what fruit he bears. If Aaron's rod budded and brought forth fruit. 
My friend, what fruit Christ has brought forth from the day he's risen from the dead and risen up into glory. He brings that fruit that you and I cannot bring. He's the one that brings that fruit. He bear, his death has borne much fruit because his blood has been taken into the Holy of Holies. And there he ever lives to make intercession for his people. My friend, we need to recognize more and more the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in his church. And then over Aaron's rod, uh, in there were the tables of the covenant. The tables of the covenant. Indicating to you that he is the one who is the Lamb of God without spot. He is the sinless one. He is the one alone uh, that is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. My friend, where do you get your righteousness? Where does the church get its righteousness? Where do the children of Israel get their righteousness? From these, these tables that are renewed. These tables that are unbroken. It is the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. These tables that we break every day in thought, word and indeed. Yet we can come to the mercy seat. We can come to the Ark of the Covenant. We can come to Jesus Christ who has shed his own blood where we will find mercy. He is the Lamb. Let us then, having looked at these things, let us then look at some final lessons simply to learn. And when you come to this, I want to, 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 to look at two things. First of all, there is spiritual help. The mercy seat. The covering. It says there's a covering over it. The mercy seat which is above it. The mercy seat in, in its root form is propitiation. Propitiation. God's anger is turned away. The, bro the law and everything is covered. When you come, he looks upon the blood. God whom God hath set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood. The Ark of the Covenant was wonderful because it had two aspects. Two aspects to the, to the Ark of the Covenant. When the high priest went in. And even today there are two aspects to the Ark of the Covenant. When man looks upon it. When man looks there. What does he find? Well when you come to Romans chapter 5. That wonderful Romans. We now have peace with God. When you look upon the Ark of the Covenant. When you look upon Jesus Christ. What do you see? In the first 11 verses, in Romans 5, 1 to 11, peace with God. You rejoice in hope. You joy in the Lord. That's because man looks there. And he finds salvation. Looking there. But what about God? God looks at it from the other side. And what does God see? He sees the mercy seat. And the blood. When I see the blood. 
What does he see? Satisfaction. Looking upon the Ark of the Covenant, man sees peace, joy, hope, everything, salvation. God looks upon it. He is satisfied. His justice, his holiness, his law, everything. And even their sins are washed away in the precious blood. The law is fulfilled. What spiritual help that gives God's mercy. And it's not just that, that there you find that encouragement, but on the ends of the mercy seat, you had the cherubim looking towards each other and yet looking upon the mercy seat as well. They, Peter later on says, which things the angels desire to look into. What are they looking into? My friend, they're looking into salvation. They are looking at the salvation that has been won by Jesus Christ. They are marveling when they see the unfolding of salvation. As they look there, they see the wonderful value of salvation. My friend, the world thinks nothing. Oh, it's like the Philistines. They thought nothing of this wee box. It wasn't, you know, two feet, three feet, you know. It was small, insignificant. But yet they're digging. They're big. It fell before this wee box. My friend, the world may think nothing of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. But the very angels in heaven, they are looking and they are marveling and they are showing and they are looking at the value of this salvation. And as they look forward, they are not only looking at one another and looking at the salvation, they are directing sinners to the salvation. How wonderful. That's spiritual help. But what about practical help? What about practical help? These are spiritual things. Justified by faith and everything. But what about practical help? Well, the children of Israel carried the ark before them all the time. The Kohathites, when they left Sinai and came to Kadesh Barnea, the ark went before them. It was always there. When they crossed the Jordan, when they came to a difficult time, it went before them. In Jesus Christ, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. When they came to Jericho, it was the Ark of the Covenant that circled. Victory was had. What practical when we have Jesus Christ always going before us, strengthening his people, bringing down the walls of Jericho. But there's a warning. There's a warning. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was removed. There is no indication that the Ark of the Covenant was ever in the Second Temple. Certain things were missing from the Second Temple. One of them was the fire that came from heaven that started the fire in the altar in the First Temple. That wasn't there. We're not told that took place in the second temple. The Urim and the Thummim are not there. The altar itself, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is not there. 
The Shekinah glory is not there. The Jews say that when the, 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 the priest went in, in the second temple, they used to sprinkle the blood towards the place where the ark used to be. Does that mean that God wasn't there? I think we've got to be very careful about saying God wasn't there. God was there. It was his house. Jesus tells us that don't, we're not to make an oath by the temple because it's God's dwelling place. It was his dwelling place. God was present. What was absent was the Shekinah glory. It wasn't there. You see, when the Shekinah glory disappears, it doesn't mean to say immediately it's not God's house. It is God's house. God's presence. God dwelt there. The glory wasn't there, though. When John writes and, 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 uh, to the churches in Asia, he's telling them. One of them, he says, you've left your first love. You're still God's house. But if you leave your first love, God's glory will depart. And ultimately, as it happened to the Jews, if God's glory is not there, man's glory takes over. We should rejoice in the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in God's house, you will either have God's glory or you will have man's glory. Surely we want God's glory. And we have God's glory when we preach Jesus Christ. When the ark is there, we are seeking to bring before them, uh, uh, said I not unto thee, if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. The, the, even though the, the Lord, the, temp, the Shekinah wasn't there, the second temple was more glorious than the first. Why? Because the true glory. Jesus Christ, he came. He entered into that temple. He never entered into the Holy of Holies. But his very presence there gave more glory to the second temple and the river was to the first. Paul says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. What we need today is not just the presence of God. I will put my name there, the name of God. We need God's glory. To come from between the cherubim and bless us once again.